Hi, welcome to another episode of Sessions with Bob and Lena. I'm Bob Gordon. And I'm Lena Durhali. And the episode today is the pandemic and your kids' mental health with special guest, Dr. Eleanor Mackey. And we are very excited to welcome Dr. Mackey today. She is a clinical pediatric psychologist at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. So welcome, Eleanor. And we just wanted to give you a couple minutes to have the floor to introduce yourself. Uh, I know you're a mom and a foster animal parent. So please share anything you want to about your interests, your clinical interests. Uh, we're happy to have you. It's exciting to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I am a psychologist at Children's National Hospital. I've been there for a number of years, but I also have the privilege of being a parent myself to an almost 13 and almost 10 year old, two girls. And yes, as you mentioned, we have been um, trying our hand at fostering cats during the pandemic, which has actually been wonderful for our mental health. So I'm really looking forward to discussing this important topic today. Great. And, you know, one of the things that we found really interesting about bringing you on is that I'm a parent, Bob's a parent and a grandparent, and he's got grandkids. How old are they now, Bob? Your grandkids? Oh, let's see. Nine and five. Yeah. So Bob's a dad of four and a grandfather of two. And every parent we know is really concerned about what does the pandemic mean on our children's mental health. And no matter what age your child is, parents have concerns. It's like you can't escape the, the mental health effects because of this pandemic, no matter how old your child is. And so we're really happy Eleanor agreed uh, to talk to us about this. And she's right on the front line. So do you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're, what you're doing at the hospital, what you're seeing, maybe what your biggest concerns are? I think one of the things that's been really striking, both as a parent and a professional, is that it is now so common to see kids struggling, whereas before it was a reasonably sized but smaller percentage of kids who were really finding that they had mental health challenges. But this whole situation has thrown everyone into a similar boat and the vast magnitude of number of kids who've had a negative impact on their mental health has been pretty staggering. And it can range from just more difficulty than they used to have, but still pretty functional to really quite impaired and everywhere in between. So it's a full spectrum, but it's important to recognize that even sort of what we'd say is sort of mild symptoms can be really meaningful and can be problematic over time, if not recognized and addressed. But of course, given the magnitude of what we're seeing, it's also hard to have the resources, whether it's parents, kids, teachers, um, and professionals really being able to devote the resources they need to identifying and supporting kids who need it. Is there any, uh, I, I imagine the answer to this would be no, but is there any way of knowing whether these um, stress-induced phenomena uh, are, uh, are is there any way to tell which ones are sort of related to the pandemic and which would have happened anyway? And does it matter? That's a really good question. I think there's a lot that we don't necessarily know. You know, there's a good amount of literature out there on, you know, kids' responses to trauma and disasters in general, like what happens after a hurricane or an earthquake or something big. And certainly you see in those events that a lot of kids have a pretty strong acute 
stress response that can look like difficulty sleeping or you know, new onset fears, trouble separating from their parents. But those, while they are sort of a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, probably you know, last for a couple months and then resolve. Whereas there's another sort of subset of kids who really struggle long-term and it doesn't seem to get better. And a lot of what we've done as psychologists is trying to figure out who are those kids at most risk and how can we move those resources that way and then teach parents and schools to help support the other ones who probably will do better as they move on. And I think with this pandemic, what's been so hard is that it's been so drawn out that there's no beginning, middle and end like there has been in the other disasters. So we're kind of in uncharted territory knowing which of these kids you know, would have been on this trajectory anyway. But we do know that it really is a, a sort of a balance of like, you know, genetics and disposition. And then for some kids, it takes very little to trigger um, mental distress. And for some kids, it takes a lot. And we also know that this pandemic has really affected kids differently. Some kids have had a huge impact. They've lost a parent or a parent has lost a job and they've had to change their financial or their living situation, or there's been some really big impact. And other kids have been more minorly affected where they may have had to stay out of school for a while or miss some activities, but generally their lives are, are pretty similar to what they were. So you have a whole range of kids with a whole amount of different dispositions and likelihood of, of developing problems and also a whole range of exposure to trauma in the context of this pandemic. So it's really hard to, to tease apart, but it's been a pretty significant impact and for some kids more than others. What's um, bringing the kids to you? So I'm imagining as I'm listening, you're seeing kids coming in because of mental distress? Yeah, our, you know, wait lists across the country, I'm sure, and certainly everywhere that I know are, are pretty substantial because parents are concerned. And often they're seeing a change in behavior. So kids who used to be outgoing or excited to do things, withdrawing and not necessarily wanting to participate or being afraid to be out. Some kids are acting out in school. Um, we're seeing a lot of that too, because they just don't even know how to regulate themselves. We're seeing a lot of peer problems because when you think about how much time was lost with direct interaction with peers, a lot of kids don't really know what they're supposed to be doing anymore. And again, when you'd have like, you know, pre-pandemic, you might have one or two kids in a classroom who were struggling with that. Well, the other kids were doing fine. So that kind of buffered them. They could sort of learn from them or people could be a little bit more understanding. Now, so many of them are struggling that you don't have that sort of foundation to, to keep kids going and learning how to interact. Um, so that those are often challenges that we're seeing is acting out more anxiety or mood problems. Um, and those types of things are really what are what are driving parents to start get, getting concerned and, and trying to find some help. Yeah, and it's you mentioned that and as a therapist myself, I'm not a child psychologist, but I do have children in elementary age. And so parents often do reach out to me, you know, confidentially about their child's anxiety. It's almost always anxiety uh, mm -hmm. before the pandemic, but definitely now what we're seeing after is anxiety and it's being manifested in acting out. I've noticed when people come to me and like you said, the problem I'm running into is the people I would normally refer them to are booked solid. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sort of running out of referral spaces for parents you know, to get the help that they need. Like you said, Eleanor, the, that your profession is stretched thin, you know, the mental health mm -hmm. profession is at capacity as well. And 
we'll probably talk about this a little at the end, but Eleanor and I have also talked about the trauma that uh, caring professionals in these fields of helping doctors, psychologists are also facing their own burnout and trauma. And so we, we kind of want to touch upon that as well. But all this to say, with it being so hard now to find providers that are accepting new patients, what are some things that parents can do at home to sort of, one, recognize that acting out is often a sign of the anxiety, right? And two, what are some quick kind of easy ways that they can do at home that can sort of bring the anxiety down just a little bit or help, help manage it a little bit better? Those are such great questions because I do think that parents equipped with some key tools can do a lot. And I think some of it is helping kids understand what they're feeling and why and normalizing it a little bit. So often it can be very scary for kids to have these intense reactions and they don't know what to do with it which is what we see when they become dysregulated in school and start acting out or at home and they're acting out. And it's just hard because they don't even know it. They're just sort of flooded with emotion. And I think even when you see your child struggling, whether it's acting out or withdrawing or crying, just sort of acknowledging this is hard. I can see you're having a hard time. Can you show me where in your body you're feeling it and have them demonstrate or even pull out a piece of paper and say, draw me what you're feeling right now or show me how it's feeling and saying, it's okay. Sometimes I feel like that too. We're dealing with a lot. You gotta be patient with yourself and even demonstrating that. And that can be very hard in the moment as a parent. If you're like, I just need to get out the door and my kid is melting down and I don't even have the resources myself, but taking a moment and modeling, wow, I'm feeling stressed right now because I'm nervous about getting out the door on time. I'm gonna take some deep breaths here. Can you do them with me? All that kind of modeling and sort of recognition that when we're feeling intense emotion, that it's hard, it's scary, but there are some things you can do. And so teaching kids how to do their deep breathing, and there are lots of ways you can even do this. If you Google deep breathing exercises for kids or Google progressive muscle relaxation for kids, you'll find tons of options and you can do them with kids and you can teach them how to say, I'm having a pretty intense reaction here. Let me recognize that it's probably because I'm overwhelmed. Here's how I calm myself down. And here's how I ask my parent for help to make it through. And so I think modeling that, talking about it and being open about it can actually go a really long way. And also there's a piece right about not dismissing the child's concerns. Bob and I, we do this in our Imago relationship therapy with adults, but validating and not brushing it under the rug. So I know like sometimes the urges and especially with prior generations of parents, it's sort of like, keep going, you know, suck it up, go to school, be strong. But now there's this piece of validating, which you said, you know, sort of, this is hard. Let's take a deep breath, but also not pushing it away. And so do you have thoughts about that too, about the validation of the concern and how maybe open-ended questions we can ask our child. So we're not sort of dismissing the concern and burying it even more. I love that. And I love sort of the recognition of like, this is what it looks like in adults for kids who haven't necessarily learned how to do that with themselves or with each other. And so I think that's such a neat point you make, Lena. I think that acknowledging and saying it can feel really hard to feel that kind of worry. And I totally understand um, and I think 
making sure that kids know that you're not blaming them or shaming them for having those strong emotions, but that you get it and you love them and you're empathetic towards them. I think that's so important. And I think the other step that's really important, but very hard. And so therefore something that you have to be open with your kids about is not letting them avoid stuff because of anxiety. We know, and you guys see it, I'm sure as adult therapists, that people who've learned to avoid situations because they're anxious about it, it just makes the anxiety worse and it makes them have more and more avoidance. So I tell my kids on a regular basis, you can get out of something if you're tired or if you just don't feel like doing it, but I'm never going to let you get out of something if you're anxious about it. If you're anxious about it, I'll be there for you. We can talk about what you can do, but we're going to do it anyway, because we're not going to let the anxiety win in that situation. And that's gotten them pretty far. And it's interesting. One of my, my older daughter reflected to me the other day, I'm really glad you've made me keep doing things, even when I'm nervous about them, um, because she sees other kids that she knows who have sort of gotten out of situations a lot, and it just makes it worse. And so I think being empathetic, asking those open-ended questions, letting kids know you understand and appreciate where they're coming from, and then helping them do the hard thing anyway, gives them a real sense of empowerment and a sense that they can acknowledge their anxiety and still move forward. Mm-hmm. You can. So uh... I have one more question and then Bob has some questions, but this brings up something that parents ask me all the time. And they're like, how do I know when to stop pushing? I get this all the time is like, my kid really doesn't want to do something. It really makes them anxious. What's the balance between pushing them to do it and knowing when to stop when it's almost traumatizing for them? If you're at the point where it's almost traumatizing, then probably you need to take a step back and help them work through it before you push them to do that. There are some things that aren't negotiable, like going to school, right? Like we see a lot of kids with school avoidance and that really makes things worse because then you get behind in school and then you get behind in friendships and you're stressed. So things like that, that's probably where it's worth putting your effort in and figuring out and getting help from the school and getting, figuring out what you need to do to help support that child and make sure you know that you're getting them to do it because you know they can and you're there for them as part of their team. Not that you're just sort of saying, suck it up, good luck today, Timmy, and shoving them out the door. Um, You know, there's warm and caring ways to do it. But there are other things like, you know, extracurricular activities where if there's really not necessarily the same need to do it. I think too, you can really try and understand by having real conversations with your kids and actually listening and reflecting back to them and say, it sounds like this is really hard. Tell me more about that. Tell me more is always a great prompt that like you said, Lena is a nice open-ended, like, I'm really curious to hear your experience. Tell me more. If it's really, really difficult, you might say, you know what, let's take a step back from this. Let's work on building your confidence a little more. And then we can try it again some other time or try some other thing like this, but we really don't want anxiety to win. And I think truly it's been very powerful. Even like I said, saying to my own kids, I don't ever want you held back by your anxiety. I want you to make choices about what you like and what you don't like and choose to do things, but I don't ever want your anxiety to be the one making your choices for you. And so again, that sort of message of, I care about you, not just that I'm making you do this and this is why we're doing it, I think can be pretty powerful. How would you know as a parent for our parents out there, how do you know, because I I imagine, people could get pretty stuck over the defining like whether 
what's the point at which my child lacks the capacity to master this stressful thing? Uh, and, and where's the point where I, I need to push, you know, gently, lovingly, but push. Um, how, how, how would you know whether it's a lack of capacity and the kid really needs some time to draw back and develop some more confidence muscle? That's a really good question. And I think it just really depends on the situation and your gut feeling as a parent. I think parents should trust their gut feeling. And if they're like, this is just not working, then just pull it back and find other opportunities to lovingly challenge them. But if you feel like, like for instance, for you know some of the kids I've seen where they truly love an activity and it's their anxiety holding them back. You're like, I know you really do love this and I know you really want to, so I'm gonna help you get there. If it's something they were kind of ambivalent about or don't really like, or there's something really difficult about it, then it might not be worth your effort, especially if you're finding other ways to help them build that confidence and that those skills, the tools in their tool belt, we call them for kids um, of coping skills for when you get in a situation that you don't know what to do with. And I think that sometimes those difficult situations are really good learning opportunities, but sometimes if a kid is just too shut down or doesn't really want to do it at all, it's just going to be more stress for parent and child. So I would say gut instinct is probably my best piece of advice. That makes a lot of sense. You know, and looking at my own levels of stress from this pandemic, sometimes I'm kind of scratching my head because I know life hasn't changed totally for me during the pandemic. Um, and yet I know it's really affecting me. And I know a lot of other people, therapists and colleagues included, who who are really feeling it um, now with the pandemic. And for the parent that might be out there saying, well, What's so different? What, what are the main things that are making my kid go from healthy, well-adjusted to needs to see a therapist? What is, what's causing the most harm, do you think? I think it does range. I think some kids have had really extreme traumas as a result of this pandemic. I mean, the number of orphans created is just staggering. And when I think about how suddenly some of those losses happened, seemingly overnight, and how invisible the threat was. For those kids, I think anyone can really understand what an impact that's had. And it doesn't take a professional to say, oh my gosh, those kids, you know, what they're coping with. You sort of all just wanna wrap them in a hug. The other kids on the other side, like you said, have had sort of minimal disruption in theory, have actually had a whole lot. When we think about school being back and forth, virtual or in-person, kids thrive on routines and they all kind of had their system going and they were used to getting up and going to school and doing their extracurriculars and coming home and going out with friends on play dates. And all of a sudden you've got, I don't know whether I'm gonna be in school or not. I've gotta be physically separated from kids. If I get too close, people just absolutely, you know, jump all over me, separate, separate. All these things that you have plans to do come with a caveat. Like, I feel like everything I do say to my kids has an asterisk. We're planning on visiting your grandparents if we all test negative for COVID right beforehand, or I'm hopeful that we can do something for your birthday, but I can't be sure yet because it depends on whether there's a variant. And so all of a sudden, all of their confidence in things happening the way they expect 
has sort of disappeared. People also, every family has a different calculus, right? So some families have to be so careful because they have a kid at risk or a grandparent at risk. And so sometimes my kids will see their friends having sleepovers without them. And I'm having to say, I'm really sorry. That's not something that we can do in our family. They're just in a different situation. And that kind of disappointment, fear of missing out is really hard. And I'd also say, I think one of the striking things I've seen is that they miss a lot of development time. Like these kids miss like a year and a half of school. So like my kid who was a fifth grader when the pandemic hit, seventh grade was her first full year back in person. And the amount of development that kids should do and negotiate with their peers between fifth and seventh grade is staggering. So we saw, and we weren't the only ones, you know, like in the first six months of seventh grade, so much stuff happening because they were trying to figure themselves out because they hadn't even been in a classroom with kids for a full year since they were fourth graders. So I think that this is really happening on a lot of different levels that a lot of normal development has been missed out on, that they're having to catch up on, that there's all sorts of things that they never had to think about that go into the smallest decisions about whether they can hang out with their friends or go to school that day or whatever it might be. Well, that's a lot. I mean, you had me at kids love routines, you know, yeah, right? <laughs> kids thrive on routines. I mean, I see that about my own kids. They, they like, you know, we think, oh, kids want to be spontaneous. They do within the four walls of, of um, the predictable, you know, what, what they can predict and depend on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you mentioning how many kids have lost a caregiver or parent in this pandemic is staggering. I actually was just researching this for my book that's coming out in May because it takes place in the context of the pandemic in the digital world. But you know, out of every four COVID deaths, a child has lost a parent or a caregiver. That is staggering. The amount of trauma that that is going to create, mm-hmm. one out of four. It's, I mean, to me, that just really blows my mind. And I think, you know, there's areas that are really in bubbles about that. Yep. You know, they don't know anybody that, you know, these things that have, have known anyone that's lost, had that really significant type of loss. And so I think people just really aren't absorbing the magnitude of what that means just for the future with our children. It's really hard to wrap your head around. It's really hard. Um, when you think of all those vulnerable kids who've lost someone, it's just staggering. Yeah. And what is that statistic? Uh, one in four kids have lost someone in their family. Uh, the statistic is so. This was from October, uh, but it was out of every four COVID deaths, oh. one child has lost a. I believe it's a primary or secondary caregiver. Wow. The number is, uh, and this was just from April first, twenty twenty, to June thirty, twenty twenty one, and the total of that in that time period is 140,000 children lost a primary or secondary parent slash caregiver. So somebody in, you know, probably in the home with them providing their care. That's amazing. That's, that's really horrific. Yeah. And so I think, you know, we're seeing that as probably the highest level of trauma, right. For the, for the kids, um, And then, like you said, Eleanor, other, you know, issues within vulnerable populations like food insecurity or not even having uh, the schools and often are, you know, safer places to go for meals or having heat, you know, things like that. And so 
there's some real survival needs for children that have really suffered because of this. So we have that, right? And then we have another level on top of that, which for is sure. missing out on developmental things that happen when we're among our peers and when we're in structure and routine and ritual, you know, at things like school. And I think Eleanor, you and I also talked about what we're seeing is that friendships are changing among kids too, because sort of related to what you were just saying, maybe different risk tolerance or risk factors in different families and that pods were formed, you know, in different, Mm -hmm. with different groups. And so people weren't having the normalcy of having, you know, birthday parties with 20 kids or mingling even among classes, even when they did go back to, you know, a hybrid or a full-time schedule, the classes weren't mingling anymore. And Eleanor and I often talk about just in our own conversations that we really think it's important to keep friends together in school classrooms. So if you want to talk a little bit more about that, Eleanor, like friendships changing and why it is important to keep friends together and, and what the pandemic has done with that, that would be helpful. I just love these questions you're asking because um, I do think it's important. And I think, especially as relationship therapists later in adults, you know how important it is for kids to learn to build secure attachments and to learn what it means to have a secure relationship where you can still have conflict or still have difficulty and that you can trust that relationship to be there for you. And kids had so much upheaval in those relationships. Cause like you said, Lena, some of it was just out of their control. They may have had a best friend, but those two groups of families had a different approach to how to manage the pandemic. And so one kid couldn't get together with the other. Removing relationships online, as we know, is completely fraught, especially with kids who weren't used to online relationships. Trying to figure that out meant probably the dissolution of a lot of friendships and a lot of conflict that, that arose. And then when you get back to class, like you said, instead of having mingling at recess or lunch hours or things like that, schools understandably potted these children so that one case of COVID wouldn't take down the entire school, but that meant then all of a sudden their social world was restricted. And if they happened to be outside of um, or any of the relationships they knew, that was really hard. I know that even my kids only had a in their extracurricular activity, the group of kids that they were able to maintain solid relationships with because at school, it was just too shifting. Um, they just didn't know the kids and then didn't have a chance to build a relationship because they kept them apart at lunch, again, understandably, or they kept them you know, trying to keep them a little bit separate. And so those secure foundational relationships that take time to build, a lot of kids are just missing out on. And again, we can understand why there's the need to do that, but it has a big impact. And there's lots of studies done on friendships, like what ingredients make a close friendship. And most of this is done in adulthood because there's a lot of adults who are very lonely. Uh, Bob and I have an episode called the epidemic of loneliness. And a lot of adults can, you know, maybe count one or two friends, uh, you know, and so everybody says, oh, it's so hard to make friends when you're in adulthood. Why is that? A lot of the research points to Friendships form on number one, random and repeated spontaneous contact. And so if you think of a college campus, for example, you're, uh, you're building friendships because you're running into people on a regular basis. Actually, I would say, Eleanor, that's probably how we became friends. That's exactly how we became friends. Yeah, we, we became friends because our kids are at the same school and we had things in common. And then our, our children happened to be, uh, Eleanor's youngest and my oldest happened to be good friends. And so 
you know, but we kept running into each other and then that builds. And then we started meeting for coffee and, you know, things like that. And so I'm equating this to children not being able to have that anymore. To your point is that they lost maybe that random, spontaneous, repeated contact because of these cohorts. And so, you know, the, and friendships as strong as they are, sometimes they can't maintain that if they've been separated and too much time has gone by and, and they don't know how to reconnect after that. Is there anything we can do to help children reconnect with friendships? Or is it kind of like a, you know, a certain point we've got to encourage new friendships. What do you think? I think it's got to be a little bit of both, but I really hope that schools pay attention and perhaps next year really do a better job asking parents. I know that sometimes the big school districts, it's really hard, but asking them if there's like one key kid that really should be kept with their kid and try and maintain some of those relationships that have formed over the past year, rather than throwing it all up in the air again and separating them again. I think anything that schools or parents can do to maintain the bonds that have now developed over this past year is going to be really valuable. It may be that it's too hard to reconnect with someone who was their friend right before the pandemic. Maybe it's possible, but I think parents have to go a little bit of the extra mile to make sure that there's opportunities for connection and that schools have to go the extra mile to make sure that they're keeping some of these friendships together to allow them the time to grow and develop into these secure relationships. You can't do much just over the course of one school year. It really takes longer to develop some of those bonds, but I think it's absolutely worth it. And now more than ever, because otherwise you are gonna get kids who may be good at meeting new kids and becoming friendly with new people, but never make those deep secure relationships that we know are so important. Yeah, that's distressing just to hear about. I mean, the, these developmental needs that are going unmet. Um, is staggering. What do you do, um, Eleanor, with the kids that are coming in? How do you how do you find out what's what's most uh, getting under their skin, and, and what do you do about it? I know that's, that's a big really question. You've got whole uh, <laughs> graduate degrees about how to do this, but uh, what's the short form? I think some of it is just equipping them with the tools to deal with what's going on in their environment. I mean, sometimes we just can't change environments, right? And we can't make things better that are wrong. We can't get a caregiver back. We can't do any of that, but we can do a couple of things. We can teach parents how to handle better in their own environment, the needs of that kid. We can help them advocate at school or in other areas to get them the structure or the support that they need. And I think that that can be really important but then a lot of it is just equipping that child with whatever tools that you can at your disposal to be able to manage what gets thrown their way. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it is doing strategies that we know. So, you know, a couple of things that have really emerged as having a lot of use right now, cognitive behavioral therapy can be really important, helping kids understand that their feelings, their thoughts, and their behaviors are all linked together. And that by changing one, you can have a domino effect on the other. So maybe these feelings are so powerful. You can't tell a kid, obviously, stop being anxious. Clearly that doesn't work. Um, but you can also sort of help them understand how their automatic thoughts may be making their anxiety worse and how to start retraining their brain to think in ways that help them manage their feelings and behavior better. So instead of saying, nobody likes me, I can't make friends with anyone, helping them sort of say, wow, making friends is challenging, but I know I can do it. I just might need some help. 
makes you feel a little bit different than just sort of that automatic, I can't do this, I give up. We also have found that mindfulness-based strategies are really important right now too, because even if you can't change your environment or change the way you're feeling, just being open and accepting and non-judgmental of the experiences you're having, being more present focused and having ways to manage those intensities is helpful. We also do a lot of work with kids in terms of acceptance and sort of recognizing some tough stuff is happening and I'm still going to be okay because I still hold to my own values or who I am as a person and I'm okay even in the onslaught of this. So there are lots of different strategies and not every kid responds in the same way or or attaches to the same approach. And so some of it's a bit of trial and error, seeing what works for that particular kid to equip them with some things to be able to weather the storm a little bit better. Well, that makes sense and kind of answers my question of what might we see you doing if we walked by the counseling room um, with your, you know, typical eight-year-old. Um, sounds like you might be talking to them about what they're thinking and which of the thoughts are causing them distress and mm-hmm. what they're believing that may not be actually true or realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and mindfulness, you mentioned as a uh, um, I think most of us have had some kind of some kind of um, interaction with mindfulness meditation, but I'm gathering you you're not necessarily talking about sitting in meditation, but um, but the acceptance piece, accepting what's arising in the here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, how's it working? <laughs> It does pretty well. I mean, I do more of the mindfulness-based work with teenagers, which sometimes is a little bit easier than the young ones, but it works for all of them. I think teaching kids that emotions are okay and acceptable and part of human life and that it's natural to have a strong emotion in response to something that's happening is such a powerful tool Um, because bad things happen and upsetting things happen and making kids feel like there's something wrong with them by having a strong experience about it isn't necessarily helpful for all kids in all situations. And so I think that recognition of we're human and yeah, having a strong emotion to that thing that you saw in the news that was really upsetting, that's human and that's wonderful. So instead of feeling bad about it or feeling overwhelmed by it, just see it, observe it and see what it does and be there with it and know that like any emotion, it's temporary and it will pass and you don't have to hide from it or shy away from it, that you can just be with it for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, And understanding and increasing that self-awareness I think can really be helpful. It makes kids less scared and it increases what they call distress tolerance, which is also really important. Kids have a really hard time. They get distressed and they get overwhelmed and they shut down and helping kids recognize that some of those feelings are also natural. Being there with it is okay. And that there are things you can do to move it along if you need to. And what are the things that help you do that? Listen to music or take a walk or talk to someone or draw or do other things. All those are pretty powerful tools to recognize, okay, I'm having this emotion that I'm uncomfortable with. I'll sit with it for a while and then I'll do something to help it move along. The thing I love about therapy is that it's not just talking. It is actually giving people tools. And, you know, I even had a client say recently, like, I used to be one of those people that you would never, ever put in therapy as a male. And he said, now I'm like, why didn't I do this 15 years ago? And I keep hearing from clients, these patterns of like these tools, these tools that I'm getting to manage these situations is really helpful. So I love that 
with kids, there's empowerment. Like we can give you tools to manage this. You have a toolbox. Like that's how I like clients to envision is your resources, your coping, your tools. And so when you're in a bad place, what are the things that you can use to get out of it or to try to get out of it? Uh, One of the things I wanted to talk about, it's a little bit random, but again, we touched on this in the very beginning is animal therapy. And if you can have pets or animals, one of the things we did in the pandemic, we we adopted kittens as well. And I found that that's been incredibly helpful with mental health, like you said. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, you sort of, we underestimate the power, again, of a purring cat sitting on your lap or a dog looking up at you, you know, with those beautiful puppy dog eyes. And in terms of tools, do you think animal therapy is also really good for kids? I think it really is. Um, I mean, coming as an animal lover with kids who are animal lovers, Um, you know, one of my kids has a cat that is so bonded with her and the other has a dog that is so bonded with her and having those opportunities just to have that unconditional love or that being who will just absorb everything that you have in that moment and not judge you for it is pretty powerful. And sometimes I will say to my kids, if they're feeling upset or frustrated or mad at themselves, like, does your dog care? Does your cat care? Do they still love you? Yeah, they do. And like, just that sort of acceptance can also translate to self-acceptance. And for us, the reason we started fostering is because too, we were stuck without being able to go and travel and the kids were getting frustrated. And what are we doing? And it's like, well, if we're here already, let's do something valuable with our time. Let's do something to save a life and then to pair, pair a cat with somebody who will really benefit as well. And that sort of act of giving was also really powerful for them. And the first couple were sometimes a little hard to say goodbye to. People were like, how do you say goodbye to these kittens once you have them? They're adorable and you hand raise them and they're amazing. That's also been a wonderful experience of I'm giving something that I love to somebody else because I know how powerful that love is. And just that act of selflessness is incredibly healing. And so we've done, we've had 12 cats at this point um, through the fostering process. And it's been really magical for us and for the kids to be able to engage in something like that. And it's not for everyone, but I would encourage people to think about what can they do that does encourage that act of giving or selflessness or, you know, just sort of unconditional love that is really, really valuable. Yeah. It sounds like it. I I know we're pushing an hour and we did want to touch on the stress of psychological, emotional caregivers, professional caring. Um, How are you and your colleagues staying afloat? I think it's hard. I think that um, one of the things that has guided me through this is sort of being part of this healthcare community. Um, Our healthcare employee community is just phenomenal. And I feel so grateful to work where I work because from our leadership on down, there has been a real emphasis on caring for the people who are caring for others. And I so appreciate that because it's a struggle. You know, we're dealing with healthcare shortages that happen when a number of employees get sick, even though we're doing a great job taking care of each other. This is, we all live in these communities where COVID is everywhere. Um, There is also the distress of not being able to provide care to everybody who needs it. As mental health caregivers, watching your wait list grow is 
so upsetting because you know that every single name on that list is someone who needed help weeks ago, not weeks from now. And so a lot of my colleagues I know are sort of pushing as hard as they can to try and get as many kids in as they can and fitting them in as creatively as they can. Mm -hmm. But there's only so many resources to go around. Um, And so it's really been hard. And I would say that our community of colleagues has been what's been so critical, I think, to keep us all afloat and and recognizing that we're all in this together and trying to support each other where we can. and, and, And I think that that's hard. And I do hope that the community sees you know, all the things we do to try very hard to make sure that we're meeting needs where they come up, um, but that we're human ourselves too. Thank you, thank you. Um, any last questions, Lena, from you? I think I have one last question and we could keep you here for hours, I'm sure, but um, I wanted to get your take on the importance of being able to decompress. And I think it's because the three of us live in the DMV. For those outside of the DMV, it's the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. In the immediate, you know, DC suburbs and in DC, there is just such a high value on productivity and doing, doing, doing. And I think that's a part of the stress and anxiety. And of course, with COVID, a lot of that was taken away from people. But I think now that things are going back to normal, there's, you know, I I fear that there's going to be a push again on this, you know, this overproductivity, which would only exacerbate the anxiety epidemic. And so I'm just thinking of, you know, when, when my um, youngest comes home from school, she's, she needs decompression time. Right. And so that's like downtime, snack, water, um, and, and, you know, and, and even weekends, sometimes it's just doing nothing really, or just having downtime. And I think it really is what has enabled our family to recharge. So um, my kids have been able to do well in school this year, despite all the other things, you know, is actually letting them rest and letting them do what they enjoy instead of other things. So, and I think this is a message for parents too, right? Because it's a self-care issue at the end of the day. And so we also, or need to be modeling what self-care looks like, right? So if they see angry, stressed, burned out parents, or you know, then they absorb that. So I just, if you wanted to speak to any of that, I would love to hear your thoughts. You said it so eloquently. And I think, you know, even in my own experience was given such pause, I was like maybe like six months into the pandemic when my youngest said to me, all you do is work and clean. I was like, oh, you're right. That's really not good. What kind of example am I, am I setting? Um, and I was really glad that she reflected that to me so that I could take that pause. I do hope that the one thing we do get out of the pandemic as individuals and as families is to sort of reflect back on what actually we didn't miss when we had to cut it out and maybe not resume that. Um, I mean, I really, we got creative in my family about you know taking walks together Sometimes, you know, the kids protested that they were under duress for having to do that kind of thing, but it was really powerful or playing games together as a family or doing things that we might not otherwise have taken the time to do. And I think that as you're right, Lena, as we sort of move back into this new phase of normal that we may forget those things. And so maybe it would be helpful to sit down and say, okay, what were the top three things we did that we really enjoyed, that we wanna make sure we kept? And maybe it was that they came 
home or were home and with nothing to do, or that you did some family activities together that weren't just the typical things that you normally do, running errands or whatever it might be. But I think that's so important and you're right, modeling it as parents is, is everything. Thank you so awesome. much. And the, the last one last point I'd like to make is that we did talk about how therapy isn't just talking. Um, and yet um, the talking that occurs <laughs> between our children and ourselves and one another and their therapists, that, that pure act of relating is food for the human soul and mind that uh, not to be underestimated that our value to just process with kids what they're feeling non-judgmentally, um, helping them learn to you know, co-regulating with them, helping them learn what it's like uh, to regulate yourself, regulate your feelings. Um, I think Mr. Well, Rogers said it best when he said, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. Who did you say Rogers? Rogers, Rogers. said, if it's Carl mentionable, Rogers. it's manageable. No, Mr. Rogers. Oh, yeah. Mr. Like Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it's mentionable, it's manageable. So if kids can put it out there, yeah. they know they can manage it. Uh, good. I thought you were talking about Carl Rogers, the, the, the uh, founding <laughs> yeah. father of, of uh, humanistic psychology. That would have made Rogers. sense too, though. It would, have. it would have. Well, Eleanor, I can't thank you enough. This has both been unsettling and, um, and inspiring. <laughs> Yeah, thank, thank you so you much that. for your time. I think this episode will be valuable to so many people. And we're happy that you came on with us today. Thank you for having me. Take care now.